Many business professionals out there have faced situations they would describe as high stakes. But you want to talk about high stakes. Imagine you're on the end of the phone line when a call comes in and a kidnapper or terrorist demands you pay $1 million or else an innocent person is going to lose their life. You simply cannot fail. So what do you do? What are the right and wrong ways to react? And what can be learned from a decades-long career of taking these phone calls and contending with unbelievably high-pressure stakes? It takes the school of hard knocks to a whole other level. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, we discuss the art of negotiation with Chris Voss, CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group and the acclaimed author of the book, Never Split the Difference. Before starting his own business and negotiation consulting firm, Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI, as well as the FBI's hostage negotiation representative for the National Security Council's hostage working group. During his career, he also represented the U.S. government as an expert in kidnapping at two international conferences sponsored by the G8. Before becoming the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator, Chris served as the lead crisis negotiator for the New York City Division of the FBI. He was a member of the New York City Joint Terrorist Task Force for 14 years. During Chris's 24-year career with the FBI, he was trained in the art of negotiation by not only the FBI, but also Scotland Yard and Harvard Law School. He is also a recipient of the Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement and the FBI Agents Association Award for Distinguished and Exemplary Service. In the discussion that follows, Chris shares the lessons he's learned in his career as a lead negotiator that are amazingly applicable to anyone looking to create a positive outcome between parties. He explains some of the most common mistakes would-be dealmakers commit, and he unpacks for us concepts such as yes without how is worthless and start with no. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about your book, Never Split the Difference, uh, negotiating as if your life depended on it. And, you know, you know a little bit about that. You were uh, FBI's top international hostage negotiator. So talk about a high pressure job, but uh, I think it's a really fascinating book. And I appreciate you sitting down with me today to talk about negotiation. The pleasure is mine. All right. Kind of to start us off, you know, and one of the things like when I was reading the book, one of the things that I guess kind of surprised me, and I am not, you know, a great negotiator. So I will, I will be honest about that right up front. But you talked about the concept of getting to yes. I think it was kind of like that was kind of a foundational, you know, this idea of getting to yes is kind of foundational for a lot of negotiations or how people are taught. And you, you write about how, you know, there's this evolution of negotiation and moving away from getting to yes. And can you tell us a little bit about that, particularly like, you know, the idea of focusing on the act of discovery and creating empathy between, you know, negotiation parties? Yeah, sure. Um, great question. I mean, and really, I think uh, uh, the intent of getting to yes and the beginning was uh, it was very good. There's not, nothing wrong with the intent. And what the intent really was is getting to agreement. And so what are the essentials of a great agreement? First of all, you know, that the other side feels committed. And this whole getting to yes thing, the problem with that is it spawned uh, yes momentum and momentum selling and momentum agreements 
and they became traps. And so getting TS in an application became, became about trapping people. I mean, mm -hmm. I've seen the yes momentum described as get a series of micro agreements. Mm -hmm. Each one is a tie down. Each one is a commitment. And then you got them. They got to, they got to say yes to the big commitment. It's a trap. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I know, I mean, I, I, I was lucky enough to meet Roger Fisher some years before he died. Mm -hmm. And um, that wasn't the intent, but that was the way it began to be get implied. Mm -hmm. And so then how do we get out of that? What really matters? What really becomes an agreement? Empathy precedes agreements. And empathy is not sympathy. Empathy is just understanding the other side. Because if you don't understand where the other side's coming from, your agreement's not going to hold up. It's just not. And then the process of discovery, the getting TS people will go heavily into preparation, learning as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And the problem with preparation and learning as much as possible about the person on the other side of the table. First issue is most of the data sources are like dating profiles. Like that ain't the person you're going to meet. <laughs> like that, that picture is just not you. That was you 20 pounds ago, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. That is not the person I'm looking at. <laughs> and I've had people describe, you know, LinkedIn and all those things. Those are dating profiles. That's, that's not actually who you're going to see. Mm. Then, all right, let's say, what, what about what information is accurate? Mm -hmm. How long is it going to take you to do the research? Like I can, I can get a minimal amount of information about you, uh, next to nothing, actually, mm -hmm. and then discover a lot about you in a conversation. Yeah. You know, and I could, I could, I could take this for granted based on how I approach my negotiation training. Like my training from the beginning mm -hmm. was there's no safety net, you know, there's no bat net. And you get used to walking a tightrope and there was never a safety net there. You realize like, all right, well, the safety net doesn't actually affect my ability to negotiate. That's all an illusion in my head. Mm -hmm. So if I don't need it, then I don't panic when I don't have it. You know, the Harvard, my Harvard, and the academics. And it's not just the Harvard that think this best bat net, best alternative to negotiated agreement mm -hmm. is key issue. I mean, that's a psychological construct. Mm -hmm. And then how much information do I need in advance? I got trained to get on the phone with somebody I know nothing about. Yeah. Nothing. And develop the information in a way that instead of making them feel interrogated, makes them feel good telling me this stuff. Mm -hmm. And which accelerates everything. So really, it's it's just vastly different than the than the getting DS framework. It's quicker. Time is money. It establishes relationships faster. The only thing besides time uh, that might be money, relationships are money. A friend of mine, Joe Polish, runs the Genius Network. Great guy. Says relationships are money. Hmm. Or is information money? The third type. Well, this negotiation approach picks up the information faster than anything else does. Mm -hmm. So you get time, money, and information all sort of rolled into this great bum bundle of uh, emotional intelligence-based approach of the Black Swan method mm -hmm. and never split the difference. Yeah, and I love, you know, you talk about the, the getting to yes, too. You know, the problem with yes is that you get these kind of phony yeses. That people know you're kind of pressuring them. So they give you a yes that ultimately they probably have no intent of really bringing into effect. It's just a way to get you off their case. But, you know, or you say later in the book, a yes without a how is kind of worthless. And yes without a how is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, you know, unpacking the yes and no dichotomy a little bit, you know, you then, you kind of, you know, honestly, you blew my mind with the, this concept you write that no starts the negotiation and that no, the word no has a way of removing barriers and creating beneficial communication. And it seems kind of, it seems counterintuitive, but then it's like you do a beautiful job of, it, of explaining why that is. Can you share with us your fascination with the word no and, you know, how we need to retain our way or retrain our way of thinking about it. The real fascination with it really, the first turning point in my yes, no journey and in everybody's yes, no journey is coming to grips with what yes and no really is. And I came across this book in 2002 called Start With No by a guy named Jim Camp. And I remember just doing a double take. I think my head probably almost snapped off my shoulders as I'm walking through the airport. And I see on, on the bookshelf, Start With No. And I'm like, Star would know. Are you kidding me? I thought that's what we were avoiding. And Camp threw out this whole idea that just just let the other side say it's okay. Let them know it's okay to say no. Like you can say, look, you can say no to me at any time. You just go away. Mm-hmm. Camp called that preserving their right to veto, their right to say no, and said that if you try to take away somebody's right to say no, you take away their autonomy. Mm-hmm. And if you take away their autonomy, people would die to preserve their autonomy. And I remember thinking at the time, yeah, boy, boy, no kidding. I know that's true. That's the whole reason why we got hostage negotiators in the first place, because people were dying right and left because we try to force them into agreement. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this this is an underlying concept in business negotiation, not just hostage. Mm-hmm. So we decided to take it one step further and say, what happens if you actually trigger now? What happens? Why people feel safe when they say no? Like my FBI days on a New York City Joint Terrorist Task Force with the NYPD. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a lieutenant that, there that used to say, you know, Chris, a lieutenant's job is to say no. And first that really, uh, I mean, I was kind of insulted by that because a leader's job is not to obstruct his people. You know, you're talking about being an obstructionist. Your job is to be an obstructionist. But what made him think that that was cool? Because he felt safe, secure, and protected when he said no. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, what happens to a counterpart when you make them feel safe, secure, and protected? Suddenly, they're open to listening. Mm-hmm. So let's start triggering no on purpose and get some experiential data, which is another way of saying find out, learning by doing, what happens when you get people to say no. And it's it's so powerful that a lot of people, that's the only thing they learn, and they immediately make more deals, and they immediately stop getting ghosted, and they immediately start getting decisions. And I'm, I'm really happy for them. Mm-hmm. I feel also bad for them because they're making more money, but they just scratch the surface. And, and, and switching from yes to no makes such a huge difference in sales and negotiations and deal making. Mm-hmm that people can't imagine they need anything else and, and and they're just scratching the surface but it's a, it's it's that much of a difference to switch from yes to no well and it's like you said i mean it creates an environment where a relationship can flourish right so it's like i respect you enough that i'm giving you control or i'm i'm respecting or acknowledging your control in this part of the conversation so that you can say no and it doesn't just shut things down or exactly. bludgeon you to get my yes through your no or any of that. 
And then like you were, you say, you know, and in the book, it's that process of discovery and learning more and more and being able to like really kind of fully flesh out the context of the discussion. And I love to, you know, so much of like what you you say about working with your counterpart to get them to solve your problems, right? And you, the the how questions and the what questions. But let me ask you, well, let me ask you a what question. What are some of the more or most common mistakes that people make during negotiations? Well, I think one of the biggest ones first is going first, not hearing the other side out. You know, most of the seasoned and savvy negotiators say he or she who names price first loses. Well, that's going first. You know, you're leaving money on the table. The problem with going first with price is you either leave money on the table, or you drive money away, or you drive people away from the deal, either or. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going first, having your say first. People are dying to have their say. So you get people talking at each other. So the biggest mistake is, however you do it, not hearing the other side out first is probably the biggest mistake. And I think going back to the book, you you make that point, you know, that it's the person who's in control of the negotiation is the listener. Not Listener's the in charge, yeah. Yeah. Now, and that, I guess maybe that leads me to this next question. What are some of the hardest things for people to master when learning to effectively negotiate? Actually listening. And then clarification is really hard to master because people are so afraid. If I go back over this, if I try to clarify in any way, I'm going to look stupid or I'm going to look like I wasn't listening mm-hmm. or I'm, uh, you know, or that I can't comprehend. And I see on, on a regular basis, a lack of clarification. Uh, be sure that what you heard is what they meant to say. Mm-hmm. That's huge. I'm, I'm talking to a really successful businessman in a Salt Lake Park City area just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Ridiculously successful guy, great human being. I mean, the dude's name is Randy Garn, and Randy is a great example of people who can be massively successful and by being very generous, like one of the most generous guys I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how he and some of his senior executives they'll watch negotiations among people that work for them. And he said, they'll see deals getting destroyed by miscommunication or two sides getting further and further apart by what he termed miscommunication. And I said, all right, so is it a lack of articulation? Is Does miscommunication, does communication break down based on a lack of articulation mm-hmm. or a lack of listening? He's like, yeah, people are not listening. Mm-hmm. They're not hearing what the other side is trying to say. They're not listening. And that's really the issue. You know, don't become more eloquent. Mm -hmm. Don't put your efforts into saying the same thing different ways. Put your efforts into being a better listener. Number one, Mm -hmm. you'll be on more firm ground. Mm -hmm. Number two, the other side will love it. Like people love to be listened to. So you're on more firm ground mm-hmm. and they like you even more. So they're more likely to be collaborative. Mm-hmm. I mean, what more do you want? Yeah. Now, and that's, I think that ties to that concept of mirroring that you write about. Isn't that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mirroring is, is, is not the body language mirror. It's not the tonality mirror. 
It's not the mirroring their behavior. Mm -hmm. It's the repetition of one to three words, one to three ish words. When we're coaching this, we say it could be as few as one. It shouldn't be more than five, you know, Mm -hmm. three ish words. What they just said, usually the last thing they said, and that's just to get good at mirrors. Like they are the great clarification tool. I talked about clarification a moment ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, start mirroring somebody. They're going to repeat, rephrase, add depth, add scope to what they just said. All massive amounts of information being triggered in your direction. So mirroring is a great skill, particularly for clarification, because by and large, if you said something that I I become aware that I need clarified, Mm -hmm. and I might say that typical, what did you mean by that? Most likely, you're going to repeat it exactly the same way you just said it, only louder, like an American overseas. <laughs> but what what I need is for you to say it differently. Mm-hmm. Expand on it, add to it. And mirrors always get people to say things in a more expansive way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the listening thing is brilliant because, and I know I'm. this is one of my great temptations is always is trying not to jump ahead to like what I want to say next, right? And it's like, if you're not listening to people, you know, using that, that, what you were saying earlier, you're leaving stuff on the table because you're not, you're not pulling in the information or you're not evaluating the information they're giving you because you're too focused on, well, what do I want to say next? Now we talked a little bit earlier. I mentioned earlier about the what and how questions. And yeah. can you talk about the methodology behind that and, and explain also as part of that, why do we, why do we avoid using why questions? Ah, yeah. <laughs> you caught yourself too, right? <laughs> why avoid why? Yeah. So what and how? You mm-hmm. know, when we first wrote the book, and we pulled these out of from a variety of sources, like in hostage negotiation, they called them open-ended questions, mm-hmm. and it comes by a variety of other names: who, what, when, where, why, and how. That reporters' questions. Mm-hmm. But what and how are the most deferential and pull the most information? People love to be asked what to do. People love to be asked how to do something. Mm -hmm. There's great power in deference. And by definition, what and how start from a very deferential place, which means the other side is likely to give you a lot of information. Mm -hmm. Now, since the book has come out, there's been a lot of stuff that we've raised our understanding of increased refinement, increased understanding. What questions are designed primarily to uncover obstacles, to get people to think about obstacles. Mm-hmm. You know, the famous Jim Camp question was, what's the biggest challenge you face? That's about identification of obstacles. What's stopping you from moving forward? What are the next steps? That's about obstacles. How is then discovering how to overcome the obstacles, how to implement through the obstacles? How's about implementation? Yes is nothing without how. An agreement is nothing without implementation. Mm-hmm. And we realize that those, there's a refinement, not exclusively, but primarily when you're looking for implementation, you're going to use a how question. Mm-hmm. And uh, the very beginning, it never split the difference. Starts with the famous, how am I supposed to do that? Mm-hmm. Which was originally, as conceived and designed, the first way to say no. Like if I'm trying to 
get you get the idea differentially across to you that we're going to run into problems here and I probably can't do it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, how am I supposed to do that? Mm-hmm. How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? Those are three different ways with three different meanings mm-hmm. of repeating the same how question. And I always thought of the first phase of no. Each one gets a little more firm till you get to the final phase, which where you just say no. Mm-hmm. Let no out a little at a time. How am I supposed to do that is the first phase of no. And then we're coming along with some more learning. We're coming up with another approach for preparation that's a little bit simpler and cleaner. We call it the six to one approach. And we ask three how questions. And I'm like, how am I supposed to do that is an implementation question. Mm-hmm. You and I are in the middle of a deal. You want something that either I can't do at all or that would be enormously difficult for me to do, which would take away all my incentive for doing the deal. Mm-hmm. How am I supposed to do that is a request for help to get you to see something that's just a non-starter. Mm-hmm. You know, Brandon, my son, uncredited co-author of the book, used to always refer to how am I supposed to do that as forced empathy, making you take a look at my position and appreciate the scope and depth of what we're dealing with Mm -hmm. from my view. So the how questions are largely implementation and incredibly effective at saying like, hey, oh, 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 this is a problem. Well, and I love too. It's 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 not only the, you know the forced empathy, but I, you make the point in the book. It's also getting the other party to solve your problem, right? In the sense that it's like it's a it's a subtle uh, a subtle way to control the context of the discussion. So now it's and you make this point, you know, about like you're getting the other party to spend their energy and resources to try to figure out your problems. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And ultimately, if it's going to be a true a true collaboration, mm-hmm. they're going to have to expend their energy and resources. Yeah. To collaborate. Well, and it's also you. I think you point out there in several of the cases and the hostage cases that you you dealt with, it was a way to pump the brakes. Like you get these crazy demands. You know, we want a million dollars, or we're going to kill your aunt, kind of thing, and. You know, so then it was, well, how am I supposed to get that money? And it was a way to kind of, then the the kidnappers had to go back and then they would decrease their demands and it bought time. And, you know, it was, it just was a very effective way to, uh, I guess, kind of take the heat out of the situation. So cooler heads could kind of prevail and and ultimately a, uh, you know, an efficacious uh, resolution could be had. That's right. Now, what do you what do you think are some of the most powerful and effective tools that you found that successful negotiators employ? Now, the first one is patience, which can be very hard for some people. You know, when I was coaching negotiations, hostage negotiations, I could never tell somebody to be patient. But if they were really chomping at the bit to move ahead, I'd say, like, well, patience is a weapon. And they'd be like, oh. All right. You know, and, and realizing that that appeals to someone who either is very assertive or mm-hmm. is trying to be very assertive. So, you know, the patient's calm demeanor. Mm-hmm. You know, Warren Buffett, by anybody's definition, anybody 
is going to have to admit that Warren Buffett's likely a very good negotiator. Mm-hmm. If he wasn't, somebody mentioned his name, we wouldn't know who he was. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that, that dude's reputation is not for being impatient or loud or attacking. Mm-hmm. Like if, if uh, anybody who's only barely aware of Buffett and you were to ask him, how patient do you figure Warren Buffett is? They'd probably say, oh, yeah, guy's got to be patient as heck, mm-hmm. you know, which then is, you know, uh, letting the deal come to you, having the ability to let the deal come to you, mm-hmm. have the ability to let the awareness of the problems and the obstacles come to you so you're not caught off guard, so you know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. I mean, patience is a great accelerator of great deals. So that would be another critical a- attribute. Plus, you know, the more patient you are, the more likely you are to listen. Mm-hmm. And then my last question for you, and this is, you know, it's around the concept of the black swan. And in fact, your consultancy is is named after black swan. You talk about the concept in the book. It's kind of like a magical, it's almost like this magical phenomenon that just happens in the life of a negotiation. That It's like, just really kind of opens things up. Can, can you explain the concept of the black swan and how they can be game changers in negotiations? Yeah, but Black Swan um, uh, was originally inspired by Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, The Black Swan, that I read back in 2007. Mm-hmm. And he called it the, you know, the impact of the highly improbable. You know, what are the little things that make all the difference in the world? And in point of fact, they're everywhere. Now, we could get into a very a- academic discussion over the concept of imperfect information. And in point of fact, no matter how smart you are, you've got imperfect information. No matter how good you are, you're holding in every deal, you're holding something back. There's stuff you're keeping to yourself, close to the vest, cards you're not showing, budget, timeline, pressures. Do you want to make the deal? Do you not want to make the deal? Uh, uh, what are the issues that make the deal better or worse for you? The stuff you're holding back is important. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't hold it back. You know, you feel the other side's going to gain leverage of you if you know it, but you, and if it was known, it would change everything. Well, if you're holding stuff back, then so are they. So you get two sets of hidden information. Mm -hmm. Now, the hardest thing to wrap your mind around is what's in the overlap. If I don't know what you're hiding and you don't know what I'm hiding, then somehow if we trusted each other enough to put our cards on the table, Mm -hmm. then the overlap of the combination of the two could be astronomical. You know, put it in poker terms. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we put our cards together, we got a royal flush hmm. and it's unbeatable. Mm-hmm. So the overlap is where the power is. Take an approach that simultaneously builds trust and gathers information so that if what you haven't managed to get them to tell you based on trust, they'll blurt out accidentally and they're going to know stuff that's important that they have no idea is important. Mm. And you and you don't know to ask for it because mm-hmm. you don't know what they're hiding. So you, you get into this phenomenal either upward or downward spiral. Mm-hmm. And the upward spiral starts with there's really impactful, cool stuff here. They could tell me if I could just build a great relationship without making them feel exploited or interrogated. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, though, Chris, that part of that, too, is that you've got to have confidence in your own position 
to be vulnerable about a certain amount of information or whatnot. I mean, you got to be sober, but I, I I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like you know if you're going to. I, and I, I think if if I recall, I mean, you talk about some of the things like in, in the book and, and what helped me through this, like if you're under like a time pressure, right? Like I have to have this deal done by Friday or or, or else. And that the, the normal intuition is like, well, don't tell people you're under time pressure because they'll they'll perceive it as a weakness and they'll try to exploit it. It's like, oh, he's under a crunch. So now we got him. But instead, you flip it around. And it's like, look, I have to have this done, and so you know by Friday. And so then you're you're kind of franchising them to help you solve your problem again. But it, and again, it's like it, it seems like there's this kind of wrapping your head around the idea of like being open with your vulnerabilities, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And wrapping your mind around that about the ways we take ourselves hostage is one of the one of the key one of the key issues. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, your vulnerabilities, that's you taking you hostage. Mm-hmm. I'm vulnerable here. Well, some people take those vulnerabilities and make them strengths. Mm-hmm. Like they instead of saying I got to get this deal done by Friday, being afraid mm-hmm. to say that, say to somebody like, "Look, if we don't work this out by Friday, I got to walk. You know, there's, uh, it's not a it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to get a bad deal. Hmm. And if you can push yourself forward, you know, into into that, a bad deal is going to cost me far more money long term mm-hmm. than anything else. And that's a hard one. And and I see people and then recognizing the potential bad deals. As a friend of mine. Um, another friend. I mean, I'm 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 sort of uh, blown away at the people that I I get to know as a result of the success of Never Split the Difference. I mean, having a best-selling business negotiation book in the world gives you a chance to meet some interesting people. I bet it does. <laughs> and so, uh, Joe Polish runs an outfit called Genius Network out of Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. Phoenix Scottsdale. Uh, it's a great group that I'm a member of, been very involved with for a number of years. I learned a lot about marketing. Highly ethical people, you know, mm-hmm. very trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Joe says there's two kinds of counterparts in this world, two kinds of customers, two kinds of people. Half's an elf. What's a half? Hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. What's an elf? Elf is easy, lucrative, and fun. Mm-hmm. He says, work with the elves, avoid the halves. Mm-hmm. That's great advice, but how do you implement that? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I did on my team was I said, all right, there's behaviors that indicate halves. Mm-hmm. And if we start looking for them, there's probably about five different profiles. They're very predictable. Mm-hmm. And we're going to pick them up in the first half hour of the interaction. And so then I told my sales team, my business development team, you got my permission to walk away from the halves as soon as you spot them. Like we we do not need to be dealing with people who are hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. Mm-hmm. So in implementing this process, picking out the behaviors, seeing how predictable it is. My team also started keeping track of the time costs Hmm. of the halves. Mm -hmm. And it came back to me and they said, when we make a deal with a half between negotiation, implementation of the deal, Mm -hmm. start to finish, it's two to five times the time cost. 
which means you just took a 50% cut in pay to deal with a pain in the neck. Hmm. Now, then the next thing they, they looked at, mm-hmm. the halves repeat. Because you might take a cut in pay if it turned into an annuity, you know, a lifetime payment mm-hmm. of repeat business. And they said, not only did we take a cut in pay, but the halves don't repeat. Uh-huh. These end up being one-offs. There's such a pain in the neck to deal with that dealing with them just doesn't go well. They don't want to deal with us again either. Mm-hmm. So the half, the hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating, you took a 50% cut in pay and you, and they don't repeat. So there's no reason to do business with them. And that's which then means that the elves start to show up. If is it by magic? Now they were always there. Yeah. But you just got distracted by these morons <laughs> that were hard annoying lame and frustrating they're too demanding they're unreliable they don't pay on time they ask for more free stuff they screw you up in every way shape or form mm-hmm. and it, it's not that the halves suddenly uh, the elves appear out of magic they were there all along the halves just kept them from us mm. and so we put a lot into that Mm-hmm. on teasing out who's who's hard annoying lame and frustrating early on and we're like uh there's somebody else out there that's better for you than we are mm. well and i guess i'm assuming i'm jumping to a conclusion here if you're not dealing with you're not spending so much time on the halves you actually have more time to like recognize the elves you know and then if that process of working with them goes faster the deal gets done sooner. So then you're able to move on to the next project or deal. So then it's like the volume picks up because you're not getting bogged down dealing like all your attention is on this half person, half project that, you know, ends up not being lucrative anyway, you know, so. Exactly. Hmm. Wow. Well, Chris, thank you so much for, uh, you know, sitting down and talking about your book and about negotiation insights. Um, I highly recommend the book to to anybody listening. Uh, really enjoyed it. And it's also, we didn't even really talk about it, but it's like, it's rife with these like great real life stories, you know, true crime stories of, uh, you know, hostage kidnapping and intrigues and, and just it's unbelievable what you've done in your career, you know, uh, let alone the negotiation insights that you've picked up. So I just want to thank you so much for your time today. That's very kind. And if, if I may, I'd like to throw out how people might be able to want to follow up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when people are ready to take the next step, the simplest thing to do after buying the book is subscribe to our newsletter. It's free mm-hmm. and it's concise and actionable. Now, to subscribe, all you got to do is go to the website, blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you pull it up, you're going to get the opportunity to subscribe mm-hmm. to the newsletter. And then it'll get emailed to you on Tuesday morning after you got Monday behind you. Tuesday morning, 730 in the morning, wherever you are concise, actionable newsletter. You can use the skills that day. Plus the newsletter is a gateway to the website. I mean, it's the gateway. We've got a treasure trove of stuff to help people raise the level of their game, make more money. And a point of fact, this sort of collaborative negotiation is going to make you happier too. You're going to enjoy life more. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, hey, thank you again. And uh, I wish you the very best. Uh, and, you know, thanks again for your time. Thanks for having me on.